The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey guys, welcome back to We Met at Acme. I cannot wait for you to hear this episode. I've been so excited to air it. I've been so excited about it, period, for so long, ever since the idea came to be. I heard Rabbi Steve Leader on Aaron and Sarah Foster's podcast, which I'm a huge fan of. I love their content and they've actually been on this podcast. So you should check out their episode if you haven't already. You should also check out Rabbi Leader's episodes. He has two of them on their podcast after this, if you fall in love with him, which you absolutely will. And I really was so obsessed with it. I sent it to so many people the first episode I had heard of his on theirs. And I was just like, this guy is amazing. It turns out a ton of my friends who live in LA went to or were members of his congregation at Wilshire Boulevard and have heard him speak for many, many years. He recently stepped down, but that was, you know, what he did for so long. And he touched so many people's lives. And he's just a really, really incredible guy. He's an author. He has amazing books out there. One about grief, tons more. I'm linking them in the show notes for you. And he's going to continue writing books. Thank God, because he's very good at it. And he's just someone who you can learn a lot from. He's a stand-up guy. He's he's the real deal, as I use that um, phrase to describe Tony P, but it's true. And I'm really grateful that he was able to record with us. We did it in person. So if you want to watch this, it's on YouTube as well. And I can't wait for you to hear it. I'm not really going to do a solo because I tried to really maximize the time I had with Rabbi Leader. So this is a longer episode and I hope you enjoy everything that you hear. Hey guys, welcome back to We Met at Acme. I'm so excited to be here with the Rabbi Steve Leader. Hey. Hi, great to be with you, Lindsay. So happy you're here. I love that we're doing this in person. I've listened to you on so many podcasts and I Mm. feel like I haven't gotten the in-person aspect. So I feel very lucky. So thank you. Grateful that you're here. Grateful to Hannah. Shout out. And before we get into it, I need to know, um, what is your favorite romantic gesture? My favorite romantic gesture. This is going to surprise you, I think. Okay. I like that. And I hope she doesn't mind me saying anything about it, but it's the truth. I think the most intimate romantic thing I have ever done, still hard to talk about, was to empty my wife's drains after her double mastectomy. Mm. That's, that's a romantic gesture. Oh yeah. That is a labor of love. That's for sure. In there. Mm-hmm. So that's what jumped into my mind. Yeah. And I know it's not where you were going, but I think that's the difference between a wedding and a marriage. Oh, totally. Know? What about something that has been done for you? It doesn't take much. Mm-hmm. You know, last night I was kind of awake, kind of not, and I felt Betsy pull the cover up over my shoulder. Mm -hmm. That's enough. That's a lot. A little is a lot. Mm -hmm. I like that. 
I love that. So backing up a little bit for anyone listening who doesn't know you, tell us how old you are and where you're from. I'm 63 years old Mm -hmm. and I was born and raised in a suburb of Minneapolis called St. Louis Park. Mm -hmm. If anybody ever saw the Coen Brothers movie, A Serious Man, Mm -hmm. so they grow about 10 blocks away from me, that movie was an hallucination of my childhood. Mm -hmm. So I grew up in this very tight Jewish community in a very non-Jewish environment. We all lived in the same neighborhood. Now, I didn't know as a kid growing up that that was partly because we really weren't welcome elsewhere. Right. Didn't matter to me. And so I grew up in this little bubble of middle class and working class Jewish families. I walked to school in the morning to the school bus with a hundred Jewish kids from my block, just my street. Mm -hmm. And so I come from this interesting mix of Midwestern values and Yiddishkeit and like just cultural Judaism everywhere all the time. Not religious necessarily, but cultural. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in a blue collar family. My dad and my uncle Mort owned a junkyard called Leader Brothers Metal. And that's where I worked as a kid. Mm -hmm. So I come from, and I'm one of five kids. My parents were 17 and 18 when they got married and they had five kids before they were 30. Where are you in the in the I'm birth the fourth order? of five. I have okay. three older sisters mm-hmm. and a younger brother. Mm-hmm. And so you, your family had this junkyard business. Right. You today are one of the most well-known rabbis in the world. How does one <laughs> like, you know, decide to become a rabbi, especially someone who's as contemporary seeming as you are. I mean, you think of a rabbi and you think of a rabbi, but you don't think of, you don't think of you. Yeah. So yeah, how did we get here? When people tell me I don't, you know, and especially when I was younger, people say, you don't look like a rabbi or uh-huh. you don't dress like a rabbi. Or, you don't talk like a rabbi. Right. And I thought to myself, thank God. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Pun intended. Mm-hmm. How did I get from there to here? Well, in a way, when your option is a junkyard, right? you start exploring other options. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's, let's start with that. Mm-hmm. I worked very hard. I've worked very hard my whole life. At five years old, I was scrubbing toilets and floors in a junkyard every Saturday. So I learned pretty early on that that wasn't for me. Although I continued to work there even through, all the way through high school. Mm-hmm. And my sisters worked there. My little brother worked there. In ninth grade, there are two fundamental things, I think. First of all, you have to understand the ethos of Minnesota. The ethos is one that is anti-ambition. Being ambitious was not considered to be a good thing because Mm -hmm. the tall flower gets clipped. Mm -hmm. Keep your head down, take over your business, take over your father-in-law's business, maybe, maybe be a dentist, but just... Don't get too big for your own britches, right? That's how I grew up. The idea was to stay one step behind everyone. And it was partly born of paranoia Mm -hmm. and partly just that's the kind of Lutheran Scandinavian point of view Mm -hmm. that, that permeated. That was the majoritarian culture. Right. And in ninth grade, first of all, at 12, 12 and a half, I loved having my bar mitzvah. I freaking loved being up there. I thought this is the greatest thing in the world. My little sermon about my Torah portion was an anthology of my poetry that I read to my friends and family. So I inflicted my adolescent angst on them in poetry. I loved being up there. Yeah. I felt special. Then also a little bit 
more about this ethos. Because I was one of five kids and my parents were so young when they got married and knew so little about parenting, we can get into my sorry ass childhood later if you want, but they I, were I've so- I've heard it all, but, <laughs> but I want to hear it again. <laughs> they were so overwhelmed. Yeah. And if we wanted to do anything extra as kids, anything, we were on our own. You want to play hockey? Fine. Walk to the rink. You want to mm-hmm. play baseball? Ride your bike. You want to do theater? Take the bus. Like we were on our own. And creative pursuits were dismissed as, as frivolous. Mm-hmm. You want to you be a musician? Forget it. You want to be an actor? Forget it. You want to be a writer? Forget it. You're going to either go to law school and run Leader Brothers, or you're going to not go to law school and run Leader Brothers. Right. And creativity was dismissed as a complete waste of time, with one exception. Anything to do with the synagogue, that was okay. Mm. They drive me, and they would be proud of me. And so the synagogue to me became a place of creative expression and a place of order, not chaos, a place of peace, not stress. I grew up in a very stressful home. Yeah. My parents had a horrible marriage and we all felt it. And then what happened was I was 14 and I was playing drums in a rock and roll band, smoking weed every day of ninth grade. Mm -hmm. And my parents were on vacation in Florida. And I got arrested with the guys in my band for shoplifting Bob Dylan albums at Target. Oh my God. Classic. <laughs> so, yeah, classic. Classic. <laughs> the dumbest heist <laughs> ever. <laughs> it was like we walked in announcing, <laughs> watch, right, right, watch right. us. Uh-huh. And so we, I got arrested. They drive me to the police station, St. Louis Park, Minnesota police station. I call my big sister, Marilyn. She has to come and get me because my parents are in Florida on vacation. I'm so nervous. And I have to call my parents and tell them I got arrested for shoplifting. They come home, they walk in the door like somebody died and it really woke them up. It woke me up a little bit, it woke them up a lot. And they realized we should probably start paying some attention to Steve. Mm -hmm. Like we actually have a fourth and a fifth kid. Right. We haven't thought much about. Mm -hmm. And they, I think very rightly, forced me to change my peer group. Yeah. So part of that was going to this Jewish summer camp in Oconomowoc, Wisconsin. And it, was, it wasn't a camp for Jews. It was a Jewish camp. Right. You learned stuff there. Mm-hmm. You did stuff there. Liberal, but still. Mm-hmm. And from the moment I got off the bus, I loved it all. Yeah. Everything about it. The cool hippie counselors who played guitar, 12-string Martins, and they were into the music I was into. And all these pretty girls from Chicago, because if you grew up in Minneapolis, Chicago was like going to Paris. You know, it was big. <laughs> and and Shabbat. And, and then there were these rabbis there, Lindsay. It was the first time in my life I ever saw a rabbi in a t-shirt and shorts who could throw a baseball. Right. I had no idea. I thought to myself, wait a minute. You can be a normal person and be a rabbi? Because my rabbis were old, scary, like greasy-haired, gnarly-toothed guys. Totally. And I, very Germanic. And I thought, wow. And I never looked back. 
I love that. Was that. It. And I love how you felt comfortable at your bar mitzvah. I think you're the only person who's By like, the way, I didn't know what I was doing. Right, right, I right. I just like being up there. Right, like <laughs> whose voice wasn't like squeaking. Oh, it was. That was and... a disaster. <laughs> yeah. But I, I love being up there. Yeah. I didn't no, care. I mean, that means something for sure. It does. Because those are like such formative times. And you, you know, you remember where you really shined when you were younger. Yes. And- you remember when your parents were proud of you. Yeah. My dad didn't come to the plays. He didn't come to the baseball games. He didn't come to the hockey games. He was there and he was proud. My dad claimed to me at a very young age as his. Mm-hmm. And I remember again, when I was 12, my father's mother died and he went to the, went to synagogue many days a week, not every day. In the late afternoon, it was on his way home from the, from the junkyard. And he would say Kaddish, the mourner's prayer for his mother. And I would be finishing up bar mitzvah class. So I would sit with him in this little chapel and go through the service. And one, and it was led by volunteers who were there too. There was never more than eight, 10, 12 people there. And one day, sitting next to my dad, it was his turn to lead the service. It was mostly in English, super reform synagogue. He handed me the prayer book and he said, you do it. Now, in retrospect, at the time, it didn't mean that much to me. Mm-hmm. But in retrospect, I realize that he was supporting me in something he clearly recognized and agreed was important. That's awesome. Yeah. Clarence is an iconic French skincare brand, and not for no reason. Clearly, the reason that this brand has been thriving for so long and why so many people with amazing, famously good skin are such huge fans of it, because they know what they're doing and they have incredible products, one of which I'm going to tell you about. Actually, I'm going to tell you about two, but we'll start with the double serum because it is two serums in one, an oil-based serum and a water-based serum, which actually mimic the composition of your skin. It's made of 21 plant extracts, including turmeric, and it's a gentle plant-powered formula that's great for all skincare types. After a week of using it, your skin really does look younger. Your pores look smaller. Fine lines and wrinkles look smoother. It's like basically better than Botox. I mean, it has been in my routine now for, I don't know, when have I started working with Clarence? Like six months ago, they sent me the product and I have not been able to put it down. Another product that I love of theirs is the Double Serum Eye, which is a plant-based formula, again, specifically designed for the delicate skin around your eyes. I have notorious bad bags under my eyes. I mean, a lot of people do, but I just, I used to never sleep growing up. And so I really need anti-aging eye treatment. I am so grateful for the double serum eye and the texture is lightweight. It's like a gel cream combo that makes my eyes look brighter, hydrated, and smoother. So with that, you have to try the Double Serum and the Double Serum INC for yourself. Plus, right now you can get 10% off plus a free welcome gift when you place your first order on Clarins.com and use code ACME2023 at checkout for 10% off and a free seven-piece gift of skincare products because you deserve a gift during the holidays, especially when you're getting everyone else a gift. That's code ACME2023 to get your welcome offer only at Clarins.com. 
It is cold out there. And more than ever during these colder months, we have to prioritize ourselves and we have to prioritize self-care. And although it seems a little sacrilegious to be talking about this during this episode with Rabbi Leader, I have to tell you that one of the ways that I have always prioritized myself is by self-pleasure. And that's why I'm such a fan of Dipsy. If you don't know what Dipsy is, it's an app full of hundreds of short, sexy audio stories designed by women for women. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. And you can discover stories about anything that you fantasize about from second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, hot and heavy hookups, something with your trainer, you know, whatever you're into, there is something for you, especially because new content is released every week. So if you have a favorite story, that's your go-to, you can add one into that rotation. They also have soothing sleep stories, wellness sessions, And sexy stories that you can read if you're into reading about that, because some people are. A lot of people are, actually. I am. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash Acme. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash Acme. That's dipsystories.com slash Acme. Prioritize yourself. You decide, you make this decision, this is where my passion is, this is what I want to do. Where does moving to LA come into the picture? Where does Betsy come mm-hmm. into the picture? Mm-hmm. I assume the move was first and then nope. you met her? No? Okay, nope. so this tell is a good us. story. We're Buckle so up. excited. <laughs> <laughs> so first, um, the way you become a rabbi is you get an undergraduate degree and then it's a five-year program at one of the seminaries. Mm-hmm. So I went to Northwestern and I studied writing. Mm-hmm. I, I knew I wanted to become a rabbi, but I also knew that writing was a gift that I had. I wanted to get better at it and that it would be an important tool in my rabbinate. Yeah. So I, I study writing at Northwestern. Great, great school. I was in the you're first- in the, You're in Paris, aka Chicago. Y- yes, I'm in Chicago, exactly. <laughs> And everything's better there. Mm-hmm. And it was the first year of the writing program. They took 12 kids into poetry, 12 into essay, and 12 into fiction. And I got into the essay writing program. And I learned, I worked my ass off, and I learned so much. I learned much more in four years undergrad than I did in rabbinical school, much more. So then I applied to rabbinical school, Hebrew Union College, first year in Israel, four years in Cincinnati which I refer to as warm Siberia. It's like the worst, (laughs) the worst. So that's the process. Let's just finish that rabbi Mm -hmm. part. And then the way I ended up at Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles is when you're graduating from rabbinical school, it's kind of like graduating from law school. Mm -hmm. All the synagogues looking to hire a young associate rabbi come to the campus. You sign up, they interview you. If they like you, they fly you out for more interviews. And so I interviewed with lots of congregations narrowed it down to a handful that I really liked who wanted me to come back out. And I remember I went, they only give you three days for callbacks back then. So I went to Chicago, New York, Miami, Houston, LA in three days and interviewed. LA was the last. What was the New York temple? I'm so curious. Uh, Larchmont temple. Okay. And you know, I liked it, Mm -hmm. but it felt to me back then, we're talking almost 40 years ago now, it felt like a place where people slept, but didn't live. 
And it just felt a little weird to me. I totally understood. Yeah. yeah. And it, I don't know. I didn't get the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I turned down a couple opportunities much later in Manhattan because mm-hmm. I felt the kids were at ages when that wouldn't be a good move. Mm-hmm. In any case, chose Los Angeles for a couple of reasons. First of all, the senior rabbi at the time was the guy I felt I could learn the most from in my first five years. Yeah. There are three things that matter in your first job as a rabbi. The senior rabbi, the senior rabbi, and the senior rabbi. <laughs> I didn't care. If that guy had been in Des Moines, Iowa, I would have been there. Right. Because he was the one that year that I felt I could learn the most from. Mm-hmm. That was number one. Number two, at the time, Betsy was, when we met, she was living here in New York, working for Seventeen Magazine. She was in the magazine business. Before that, she was in the fashion business. So there was no magazine business anywhere other than New York and LA. Right. And I didn't want to go to Larchmont. So we went to LA. And that's part of the reason. Now, the Betsy story. Yeah, yeah. Let's are you back ready? It up. Buckle I'm ready. up. Okay. So being a single Jewish man in Cincinnati, Ohio. And your opening line is, I'm studying to become a rabbi, is about the worst (laughs) dating profile in the worst environment for dating a Jewish woman you could possibly imagine. Totally. It's just not good. And I had just ended a fairly torturous, very long-term relationship with the woman who was my girlfriend in high school and college. Mm Mm-hmm. And she dumped me for an Israeli soldier. So kind of wasn't a fair fight. Mm-hmm. No, not at all. <laughs> I didn't have a chance. Totally. <laughs> and Betsy was living in New York. She got Hodgkin's disease, had mm-hmm. no family here, mm-hmm. and needed treatment, needed radiation therapy. It was one of the first cancers they could cure. Yeah. And she had a brother living in Louisville, Kentucky, where the Humana Hospital system is. So she went to stay with her brother and be treated for Hodgkin's disease. And then she went to her parents' home, this small town in Indiana, about three three hours from Cincinnati to recuperate. Now, I know this is a complicated story, but you'll edit this. When you're in rabbinical school, there's this thing called a student pulpit. So part of the curriculum is you have to spend one weekend a month for two years in some godforsaken little town that has like 20, 30 Jewish families, can't afford a full-time rabbi, and the student rabbi goes once a month for a weekend and you just make sure the place still has a pulse. Uh-huh. You just try to keep it going. Right. Uh, mine was in Sherman, Texas. So that's a whole nother story where they referred to me as Rabbi Steve Leader, the pastor from the Hebrew church. That's, <laughs> that's the kind of towns we're talking about. So Betsy grew up in this little town called Marion, Indiana, and it was a student pulpit. Mm-hmm. She's home recuperating, staying with her parents. Her dad's a doctor, her mother's a nurse. And she goes to services Friday night with her parents. She's the youngest person there by 30 years. And the student rabbi and his wife are there that weekend. They start talking, what are you doing? I'm here, I'm recuperating, blah, blah, blah. And he said, well, why don't you come to Cincinnati with us for the week? And she says, okay. They go to Cincinnati and they bump into a friend of mine who says, you should introduce her to Steve Leader. He's going to like her. Mm. So the wife of this student rabbi was my art teacher at this little Sunday school and Wednesday school I was running. It was my side hustle. I've always had a side hustle. You got to have a side hustle. I've had two most of the time. Mm -hmm. So she walks Betsy into my 
funky little office in this synagogue to introduce Betsy to me. And I think she's introducing me because she's going to be a guest in the school that Wednesday. Mm -hmm. Betsy walks in. I can tell you exactly what she was wearing. She walks in the room and the barometric pressure of the world changed. I just, who is that? She, she's a definitely not from Cincinnati because Betsy's a chameleon. She adapts to the environment. Mm -hmm. You go to Africa with her, she's beaded up and in colors in a day. You go to Wisconsin with her, she's in, she blends right in. You go to LA, you go to New York, she's a chameleon. And she had adapted to New York style of the mid eighties. She walks in and I just, my first thought, she's not from Cincinnati. Right. And wow. She has the most beautiful eyes, like Caribbean water, azure. Mm-hmm. And then it's Steve, this is Betsy. I stand up, I shake her hand, whatever. And she told she told me much later that she she looked at my watch and my shoes <laughs> and she decided <laughs> I was I was okay. Uh-huh. And then she left. And then this woman comes back and leans over my desk and she says, she says, Do you have a girlfriend? I said, not right now, really. She said, well, Brad and I are busy tomorrow. We need somebody to go out with Betsy. Can you take her out for dinner tomorrow night? Now, back then we didn't have phones, cell phones. I had the, you know, a calendar, right, right. pocket calendar. So I said, I don't know. Let me check. Now I knew, I knew I had nothing to do yeah, the next of night, but I was sort of playing a question. Well, let me look. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I guess, yeah, have her come in after school. We'll figure it out. So Betsy comes back in. Do you want to go out for dinner? Yes. <laughs> the next night we went out for dinner and on a double date nope oh okay. just us mm-hmm. and it turns into a 12-hour date oh wow we had dinner we talked effortlessly we talked about our exes and how painful all of that was mm-hmm. we talked about her cancer we were sitting down by the ohio river all night until sunrise talking and when we were down there the wind blew and she had long hair in the back. The wind blew and I saw that she had no hair on the back of her head beneath that layer of long hair. Yeah. And I said, what, what happened? And then we started talking about her cancer. Yeah. And it was very deep and very real. Mm-hmm. And I could tell what an authentic, good, I mean, this I don't mean this pejoratively. I mean this in the best possible way. Simple person. Mm-hmm. She was. And then it was like, I don't know, six, seven in the morning and she had to drive back to Indiana. I didn't even know her last name. We exchanged phone numbers and she goes back to Indiana. We decided we wanted to see each other again. Turns out it was either had to be the coming weekend, the next weekend, or not for like eight weeks because of my side hustles. I wasn't going to be in Cincinnati. She comes back the next weekend. We're sitting in the couch in my apartment Friday. And I just look at her (laughs) as only a 24 year old could, you know, I just look at her and I said, you know, I think you're it. And she looked at me and she said, I feel the same way. And then I said, so are we engaged? (laughs) And she said, I guess so. Oh my God. 
And that was it. Uh-huh. And then she called her parents and said, I'm bringing this guy home for dinner tonight. Let's eat in the dining room, which meant something in her family, right? Mm-hmm. And I call my parents who were at the time in Coronado in California. I call them and my mom answers, hi, honey. What's I said, mom, put dad on the phone. Now to tie a ribbon on the shoplifting story, the only other time I'd said that was, was when, when I got arrested. <laughs> yeah. So they knew it was big. My dad gets on, Steve, what's up? I said, I'm getting married. And both of my parents said, to who? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I said, well, to this girl I met last week. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they must have thought you were crazy. Insane. And my dad, I had a very harsh dad and a very amazing dad. There's a lot of dissonance. Mm-hmm. I've written a whole book about yep. father-son dissonance. My dad says, Stephen, you're not getting married. You're thinking about getting engaged. And this, Lindsay, was one of the two times in my whole life I ever stood up to my dad. Mm -hmm. This was the first. The second was when our son was about two years old. Mm -hmm. I said, dad, don't fuck this up. I'm getting married. My mother interrupts and she says, we're looking forward to meeting her. Like as in something she said many times, shut up, Leonard. You Mm -hmm. know, it's like, shut up. Mm -hmm. And then we flew out to Coronado We're walking down the beach, 10 minutes into my parents meeting Betsy. My mother leans over and she says, Stephen, she's perfect. Oh. And we got married December 21st, 1985. In a few weeks, we're going to celebrate our 38th anniversary. That's incredible. 39 years together. And, you know, I've had that feeling only three times in my whole life where I knew the right thing to do. Right. I just knew it. And that was the first. I love that. Well, I have to ask because Hannah knows I need. So you're a Gemini. Yes, I am. When is her birthday, Betsy? Betsy is May 12th. Oh, she's a Taurus. Yeah. I I love that match. I I see it a lot. (laughs) But it's like you have this story that is otherworldly, worldly about like meeting. It's like, first of all, if I were one of your amazing children, I'd be like the pressure to have this like insane meeting with my future with my future partner. And then you think of all the, you know, wonderful people in the dating world today who are single. And if someone came to me and they were like, I just had a 12 hour date with a guy. And then he proposed to me on my second, I'd be like, girl, run. (laughs) (laughs) This guy is is what they call love bombing you. Right. However, obviously you guys were the exception. You really knew that this was your person. You had Almost like a miracle moment. It was beshert, as they say, right? Yes. But for the people listening today who are like, how do I have that story? Like, you know, how can you tell if it's something that is truly meant to be or, you know, just a player? Yeah. I think there's a middle ground in between that too, Mm -hmm. right? But I've done, I've officiated at 800 weddings. Right. I'm not sure. 900 And so I listened to everyone's relationship origin story. Mm -hmm. It's my first question always. And I'm so jealous because that's my favorite. How did this happen? It's my favorite thing to hear. Right. Well, so many times. Now, people don't act on the intuition Mm -hmm. the way we did, but the intuition is there. Yeah. Very, very often. I will ask a question like, well, how did that first conversation go? 
And people say things like, it was effortless. It was like we'd known each other forever. We talked about our families. We talked about kids. We talked about, there was an ease, a connectivity and an ease in the conversation. Mm -hmm. As if you were born in the same village at the same time. And that's a sign. That's a sign. Physical chemistry, very important, of course. Mm -hmm. But I often say, and I've said it to my own kids, that chemistry and even love itself is about half of what you need to have a marriage. Yeah, It's the first half. Like if that's not there, you don't even need to worry about the second half. But if it is there, you still have to grow from romance to love, from a wedding to a marriage. Yeah. Because they're not the same thing. No. So I would say to any one of your listeners who's like, damn, why doesn't that happen to me? I would say it will, maybe less dramatically, Mm -hmm. but there will be a person across from whom you are sitting with whom you are communicating so effortlessly. Yeah. And who you think is so beautiful. It will, it will. Christmas is around the corner and Hanukkah has just wrapped up and it's a lot of family time and family time can bring up a mix of emotions. And you know what? If you're like, I can't relate, then that's amazing. And I'm so jealous. But the truth is it can be triggering for a lot of people to be around their family. There can be comments unsolicited comments if you're pregnant about how full your face is, (laughs) you know, things that it's hard to just let roll off your back, but that's where an amazing therapist comes in. Having Talkspace is like having a mental health professional in my pocket at all times, whether I'm at my in-laws traveling or whatever it is, taking care of my own mental health has never been easier. It's really incredible. And if money is tight this year because you just tipped everyone in your life, it's the holidays, you had to get gifts for everyone, Talkspace is in network with most insurance plans. So you only pay a small copay, which is a world of difference between most therapists. With Talkspace, you can sign up online and get a personalized match with a provider who is right for you, typically within 48 hours. It's incredibly convenient. Because as I mentioned before, you can send messages to your therapist so you don't have to wait for your next session. It's secure and private, of course, using encryption technology to store your information safely, complying with the latest HIPAA regulations. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $80 off of your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com slash Acme. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash Acme to get $80 off your first month and show your support for the show. That's Talkspace.com slash Acme. I don't know what your plans are, but I will not be traveling during the holidays. I will be home, um, doctor's orders, And I want to do something that's fun and exciting while I'm home, like maybe a themed party with my friends who are also here. So I was thinking about doing like a Western themed party for New Year's Eve and getting like, you know, like cowboy, what is it called? Like cowboy caviar, whatever that viral 
stuff is, I'm trying to get involved with that. And I am so grateful that I have my Tacova's boots to wear to this party. And I honestly, I have, I'm not going to lie. I have like three pairs of these boots so I can share with my friends in case they need. But also I'm telling you, you need a pair of Tacovas. And if you still haven't gotten a holiday gift, it's not too late because they are amazing. They have great customer service. And you can walk into a store if you're in one of the incredible places where Tacovas exists. So make sure you go to tacovas.com and check out where all their stores are. If there's a Tacova store in the neck of your in in your neck of the woods or the neck of your woods, swing by for some Western hospitality, a cold one, a boot shine, gift wrapping supplies on the house, which is a sick deal for the holidays. You can even get your gift custom leather stamped or branded. Plus their expert staff is ready to guide you to that perfect pair. And if you're still stumped, you can grab a gift card for someone that you love. Start off gifting season on the right foot at tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. Don't go gently, y'all. I also think that so many people, they, you know, if their parents have an amazing marriage, and there's a ton of questions related to this, which I'll ask in a moment, but if their parents have an amazing marriage, they're like, you know what, how am I going to find something? That, it's your parents didn't have this amazing marriage the second they got married. They built it. Like they have gone through so much together. Yeah. The shtick that they have now, the things that they, you know, the reason that they can get through anything now is because of what they've built. It's not because of immediately meeting each other. Correct. And I'll I'll tell you two counterintuitive truths. I won't get too Jewy on you here, but just one example from the Hebrew Bible, from the Torah. When Abraham's wife, Sarah dies, he thinks to himself, you know, my son, Isaac needs a wife. Mm -hmm. Sometimes in the absence, we realize how beautiful something was. So he sends his servant to go find a wife. Servant finds the kindest woman at the well, which was the meeting. That was the hookup place. Brings her back to meet Isaac. And it says that Isaac took Rebecca as his wife and he loved her. It's the opposite of how we think about things. Right. We think first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes the baby carriage. The biblical view is the opposite. First comes marriage, then comes love. It's not that it doesn't take some important connection to get married. Of course it does and it should. But a a wedding and a marriage are not the same thing. And romance and love are not the same thing. My next book, which I've just started thinking about and talking about, is going to be, it might have a provocative title like How to Make Love or Making Love or How Love is Made. Mm -hmm. Because love is made. And this is the counterintuitive point that so many people don't grasp. We tend to think of sacrifice in our culture as a net loss. It's a negative thing. She sacrificed so much. He paid the ultimate sacrifice. We in Western culture think about sacrifice as a net loss. The biblical word, the Hebrew word for sacrifice, korban, comes from a family of words that all mean to be near to draw close, the word for relatives, the word for ingathering. Sacrifice was the way the ancients believed they could draw closer to God and to each other. You receive 
by giving. Mm-hmm. And that's what I mean by love is made. I'll, I'll give you a quick example from your own life. What are the two things that mean the most to you in your whole life? I guess. And you can make family one of Yeah, them, yeah, yeah. You know? My family and, and my husband, but my no, husband is my family. Yes. Okay. So family and? Uh, family and health. Okay. Right? Because without those. Well, and what are the two things you have sacrificed the most for in your life? Um... Oh my God, I'm like, have I sacrificed enough? Is, is No, ha, what are yeah. the things you've given the most given over to? Given the most, to? my family, I guess, and, and my friends too. Your family, your relationships. Yeah. And that's what's most important to you. Mm-hmm. Do you yeah. see it? Yeah. The thing that you have given the most to is the thing that's most precious to you. Right. That's why I say love is made. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's the difference between a wedding and a marriage, a wedding is a glimpse. It's just a peek right. at the potential you have for human fulfillment and human love. But the marriage is about giving and giving and giving. Anybody who tells you marriage is 50-50 knows nothing about marriage. It's right. never 50-50. Totally. It always ebbs and flows in, in it has whatever to. way. Mm-hmm. It has to. Lindsay, I, I, I got nothing today. I'm exhausted. My head hurts. I might have COVID. I can only give 2%. That's okay. I got mm-hmm. you. Oh, I'm so tired. My back hurts. The baby's kicking. I got it. I got dinner. It's never 50-50. Right. Nor should it be because 50-50 means you're keeping score. Mm-hmm. And you want to ruin a relationship? Yep. Keep score. Yeah, no, exactly. Or as my mother lived, forgive yeah. and remind. that's so true i mean there's rarely ever been a moment and i've only been married for two years you've been married almost 40 where it was 50 50 and i like ever was like oh yeah he did this so i'll do that like you know we had we had a situation this summer where he had back surgery Mm. and i was in my first trimester miserable and i slept with him at the hospital and it couldn't have had less to do with me when maybe, maybe it should have, but it couldn't have. It was 100% him. And yeah. that's okay. Cause it's going to, the pendulum is going to swing. Even if it doesn't. Right. Does the pendulum ever really swing with children? No, probably if not. If you're keeping score in mm-hmm. a way, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. But that's love. Right. That's love. Mm-hmm. And that's the, that's the journey of it. And it is never, you know, what your earlier, comment kind of implied like, well, you get in a groove at a certain point and it gets easier. Mm -hmm. That's true, but it never gets easy. Mm -hmm. It gets easier. Mm. What, what you develop are skills at, at diagnosing and resolving conflict faster, but the conflicts exist, of course. Mm -hmm. And, and you get this ability, which I think is so important in, and in facing any kind of difficult challenge or painful situation or loss. Very often, for example, when people come to see me on what I call my couch of tears in my office with some horrible situation, I ask them before this, what was the most difficult thing you've ever been through? And they always know what it is. Well, my mom dying. I said, well, how did you get through that? Well, 
I, I leaned on, I leaned on my husband and I leaned on my family and my friends and I took good care of myself and I, I leaned more heavily into my faith. I said, well, that's how you're going to get through this. Right. You have been here before. You have the blueprint. Yes. So that's what a mature marriage gives you. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also, I've always wanted to write a book called How to Have Your Second Child First. I was going to ask you <laughs> when this book is coming out because I need it before January. <laughs> well, here's the thing. And this is the truth of love and sacrifice or really sacrifice and love. It's a great title, How to Have Your Second Baby First. So good. You need to like copyright it. But you it. cannot write the book. Yeah. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. You cannot have your second baby because first. You, you have, have to live to, it. Right. I mean, you, but that's the contents of the book, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. It's a hell of a title. <laughs> I know. But first, I think I'm going to write this book about mm-hmm. making love, you know? Yeah. Because it is made. Yeah. It's it's not just bought or It's not just chemistry. Up. Mm-mm. If it was just chemistry, I I don't think anybody would be married. Right. But unfortunately, a lot of people think that it is just chemistry. So it's good. They need to hear this. Speaking of things that people need to hear, we have a lot of questions oh, good. that came in for you. This one is kind of related to what we were talking about before. What questions do you ask couples in the pre-marriage interviews mm. when they're like, you know, we need you. We need you to officiate our wedding. And you're yeah. like, hold on. Yeah. Let me make sure that you. Well, there's a, a whole couple. process. I meet with couples five times mm-hmm. before I officiate at their weddings. And if they're not willing to do that, I tell them I'm not your guy. Mm-hmm. They also have to join the congregation because I'm not for rent. Mm-hmm. I, I sit them down. What's your husband's name? Steven. Steven. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> I would, you, if you were coming to your first appointment with me, I would sit you down and say, Lindsay, Steven, the first thing I want you to know is I take what we're about to do together very seriously. Mm-hmm. I don't mean I'm this heavy, serious guy all the time, but what we're going to do together, I take very seriously for a very important reason. Number one, I don't want you to feel like you're being married by a stranger because mm-hmm. that happens all the time. You can rent a rabbi like you can rent a caterer and a florist. Number two, I don't want to marry strangers because then I'm acting and it's phony. And I have no interest in being the rabbi for your wedding. It's 25 minutes. I've done eight or 900 of them but I'm very interested in being the rabbi for your marriage. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what this is about. Now, I know you want also a great wedding and we're going to plan a great wedding. We're going to keep focused on that part that matters because you're going to spend way too much time, way too much money and way too much anxiety on things that are literally garbage the next day. Garbage. The food, the flowers, the invitations, it's garbage. Now, it's a great party, but it's not what's going to hold you and comfort you through the years. Mm-hmm. What do I remember? What does last from my wedding? I don't know if we had chicken or fish. I don't know if we had tulips or orchids. I don't know what color anything was. I don't know who sat where. I don't know what the invitation said. I don't remember the name of the band. I remember what Betsy looked like coming down the aisle. I remember what the rabbi said to us and I remember dancing with our friends and I sat behind the drums for part of the night. Mm -hmm. That's what I remember. Yeah. So we, Lindsay and Steven, we're going to focus in here on the part that matters. You're going to lose control over the rest of it, but not in here Mm -hmm. and 
that's sort of how it starts. And then I ask, look, tell me how you got here. Let's hear the story. Mm-hmm. And then we go from there. If you are a long-term listener of We Met at Acme, you know my morning routine by now. You've heard me talk about it so many times. And you know that I wouldn't be the person who, you know, goes to the bathroom or even is like nice without my AG1 in the morning. I started drinking AG1 daily about two years ago now, and it has truly changed the game for me. I try, emphasis on try, to eat vegetables, especially during this pregnancy, and it's just not really working. It kind of grosses me out beyond measure. But the taste of AG1 is something that I've craved since I started drinking it two years ago. I remember at first I was like, this is a weird taste. And then like the very quickly like, oh, this is a taste that I need all the time. I don't know what it is, but if you drink AG1, you know what I'm talking about. It just tastes so good, especially when it's cold. I love to take a scoop of AG1 and mix it with cold water or some water with ice and then just stir with my metal straw. It's amazing. Every scoop includes prebiotics, probiotics, and digestive enzymes for gut support, magnesium and B vitamins for energy support, adaptogens to balance my body's stress levels, vitamin C and zinc to help support my immune health. I mean, you get it all. You get it all with one scoop. AG1 is a supplement that I trust to provide the support my body needs daily. And that's why they've been a partner for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash Acme. That's drinkag1.com slash Acme. Check it out. Now, to your question about sort of beta testing the relationship. Sure. This maybe I wouldn't have done as a much younger rabbi, but now I have, I think, the intuition to do it. You'll come in for the second appointment and I'll say, how are things going? And I'll watch very carefully. And I can tell in a nanosecond if the two of you are stressed about something, if there's a problem, whatever. I can tell. Right. Well, we're okay. Really? What's just okay? And then it starts. Well, Stephen's mother is... Or, well, my sister this, or mm-hmm. oh, my father's second wife that, or, well, we're trying to decide LA or New York and we can't figure it out, or I, he, I don't know, he, I, I want to keep working and he doesn't want me to work, or I don't want to change my name, or I did. Something is starting to percolate up to the surface, and then we go into it. Mm-hmm. And then, then I get to have the opportunity to talk about and sometimes people make a huge mistake, which is, well, but once the wedding's over, yeah, we'll be fine. This is all about the wedding. No, it's not. Oh, no, no. There's always external pressure mm-hmm. and stress. It's Next, it's going to be about what to name the baby or where to live or, you know, which job to take or what to do about your loser brother-in-law or whatever There'll it is. always be something. Yes. And so really it comes down to what is your skill set as a couple to diagnose and peacefully and lovingly resolve conflict? And Lindsay, Stephen, 
you do not have to live like this and you do not want to be standing under the chuppah like this. So let me, let me give you three names. I think you would really benefit from some coaching about how to talk to each other. Mm. And then I refer them and they get the help they need. I don't have the time or the expertise to be a, you know, an, an MFT, but I know enough to, to see a problem. Totally. And then I get them the help they need. And then we start working on a parallel track of rabbi, therapist, ceremony, other issues. And that that's sort of how it how it goes. But in these, you know, 800 plus weddings that you've done, I imagine there's at least one couple that didn't make it down the aisle. (laughs) At least one. My batting average is pretty good, but it's not perfect. I mean, that has nothing to do with you. Well, sometimes it could. Yeah. It could. I mean, there, there are times where a couple gets divorced where I wish I had said something. I usually do say Mm -hmm. something. Mm Mm-hmm. And I don't hold myself responsible for most of them, but there are a couple where I think, yeah, you know, I thought he might have been gay, uh-huh. you know, things like that. Uh huh. What is something that you know, looking back, you knew it wasn't going to work out? Like, what is a sign? Oh, that- oh, I've I have counseled many couples to postpone. I never say cancel because that's mm-hmm. too bitter a pill to swallow. So I say, right. you know, Lindsay Steven. This is such a difficult and important thing for you to learn to work through. Maybe, maybe we wait. Mm -hmm. You don't want to feel like this under the chuppah. Why don't we wait and let you, because I got some news for you. When people say marriages work, this is what they're talking about. They're not talking about who picks up the dry cleaning and who picks up the dog shit. They're talking about this. They're talking about how hard it is to see the world through another person's eyes with some empathy and kindness. So let's, let's keep working on this. So I always mm-hmm. counsel postponement, not cancellation. So listen up. If you hear your rabbi <laughs> say, let's wait, you should probably think about your, your well, rabbi. Yeah, I, or think mm-hmm. about your rabbi. I mean, I don't know. I'm no, not no, always no. right. But I, I will say, listen, yeah. I'm not God, but this is no way to live. Right. And you don't have to live this way. Mm-hmm. You can learn better and be better and do better. Mm-hmm. And that, that's sort of how I tap the brakes if necessary. But yeah, people still grow apart and, yeah. and there are still infidelities, which are not always of a sexual nature. There's mm-hmm. financial infidelity. There's time infidelity. Like I thought we were going to be together more right. infidelity. Mm. There's obviously infidelity, infidelity. And even all of these things can be survived and even good for a marriage in a sense. I mean, I often say to people, some people are lucky enough to have their second marriage in their first marriage. Mm-hmm. Something happens and you really have to face each other and the truth of what's missing. Yeah. And then you have a second marriage within your first. Sometimes you cannot reconcile, but you have a great second marriage. Yeah. So it, it's an opportunity, but not always one that is successful. I have to tell my dad's joke that he says yeah, because he would be so upset if I didn't. Even at my wedding in his speech, because he this is one of his favorite jokes, he says, you know, Lisa, my mom, and I have such a great marriage. I'll tell you the key to a great marriage is you marry your second wife first. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's the same thing. It's like the same but thing you with know the what? have your second kid first. She wasn't his second wife when they got married, mm-hmm. something had to be resolved in a beautiful way, mm-hmm. painful, beautiful way, 
pain is the only teacher, there is no other teacher than pain. Right. And then you get that second. It's true. Although I think that his his uh, joke is more surface level. It's more like, oh, the second wife is, you know, hotter and younger. Yeah. Type of thing. But yeah, you know, he's just he's just joking with her because she's not she's not younger, but she's definitely hotter. <laughs> um, <laughs> OK, so this one, this one's a little heavy, but I know you have an incredible book about grief. Mm-hmm. Somebody had asked how to process and accept that our parents are getting older and we're closer to losing them. Mm-hmm. Well, I have a few. It's without context. I'm going to kind of guess at some of the possible reasons the question's being asked. One piece of advice I have is uh, don't miss people's lives worrying about and catastrophizing the future of their deaths. Don't miss your elderly parents' lives worrying about their deaths. Yeah. Planning their deaths, seeing the funeral, imagining being alone. We all do that. It's why our DNA has survived. We are the descendants of people who lived as if there was a tiger behind every tree, and that's why they lived. So I'm not, I have no illusions about human nature. If if you said this to me, like, oh, Steve, I just so, I think about my parents dying all the time. I'd say, okay, we all do. But if you could do a 10% less, it's going to change your life and change your relationship with your parents. Just 10% of the time, because I'm not going to give you a new personality. Can you, when that darkness comes into your head, say to yourself, okay, I'm, I'm catastrophizing, doing exactly what the rabbi said. I'm going to change the question in my head. I'm going to change it to, what can I do in the next hour that's actually meaningful? to me, beautiful, loving for my parents, loving for myself, for my family. Just jerk yourself back from the edge of the cliff. If you do that 10%, catastrophize 10% less, it changes your life. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. If I offer you 10% on your money right now, would you take it? For sure. Right? So it's a lot. Number one. Number two, people who fear their parents' death profoundly, it's usually do to some previous trauma. Maybe your best friend's parent died Mm. at a young age. You know, that's very often a part of it. Or maybe your parent had a near-death experience, you know, was in a car crash or something like that. By a certain age, most people have narrowly escaped death multiple times. So it's usually a trigger. It's catastrophic. And what I say to my own kids, particularly Hannah, who's here, and she knows this, is, well, it could happen suddenly, but generally, generally it doesn't. And it generally doesn't happen until you're ready for it to happen. Mm. It's still sad, but it generally happens when you are able to take care of yourself and you are able to navigate in the world as a successful adult. And then, of course, and this is the deeper thing, this is what this book you mentioned about grief is called The Beauty of What Remains. Because there is at some level a truth that your parents never die. Because there's so much of them that remains. And in some ways, my relationship with my dad is better now than when he was alive. Mm-hmm. Because the sharp edges have been softened. Right. And I... I bump into and and discover 
so many beautiful things about him and the things he taught me and the funny things he said again and again and again. It's one poet called death, the absence that is forever present. Perfect. Yeah, that's amazing. The absence that is forever present. So I would say to this person, it most probably won't happen until you are able to manage it. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, enjoy your parents. Enjoy the hell out of your parents. Yeah. Yep. Call them right now. What qualities would you tell young people to look for in a partner? You had mentioned Betsy, and I know you meant this word in like the positive context, but you had said simple. Mm-hmm. I assume you mean, you know, not bringing the drama, not this. Oh, like there's just... a little drama. <laughs> <laughs> but intentions of of purity, like in- yes. good intentions, like, you know, yes. is that what you would tell people to look for in a partner? What is, let's, let's, let's say, Two qualities, right? What do you think? Kindness. Mm-hmm. Kindness and empathy. If a person can be kind to you and empathetic to you, they really can somewhat feel what you feel, understand how you feel, see the world through your eyes, not their own. You know, I'm paraphrasing, but there's the sages in the Talmud say we don't see the world as it is. We see it as we are. Right. Does this person have the the ability not to see the world as they are, but to see it as you are Mm -hmm. and understand you in that way? Because then we're talking about a real and beautiful human connection as opposed to judgment. Right. So I would say kindness and empathy. Mm Mm-hmm. What would you say are your three most valuable dating lessons and rules or rules? Because Hannah knows I have a lot of mine, (laughs) but I want to hear yours. Well, physicality is important. Mm -hmm. You got to think the other person is attractive, sexy, hot, whatever word you want to use. Totally. If that's not there, it's going to be an uphill push. Yeah. It goes away, honestly, to some degree. Looks fade. Yeah. But- it's important. Chemistry is mm-hmm. important. Secondly, I would say if it's a problem when you're dating, it's going to be a problem when you're married. Oh, totally. Okay. Don't fool yourself. Marriage is not a band-aid. Kids are not a band-aid. No. I mean, they are, they, they are a band-aid and that a band-aid doesn't actually cure anything. If you do not find the other person's faults to be endure, endearing when you're dating, they are not going to become endearing because you're married. They're going to be like 10 times. Yes. Okay. It's, it's exponentially more difficult. Okay. And the other thing I would say is you can overcome or, and or live with the reality of not enjoying the other person's family. Now, it's great when young couples say to me, he loves my family, I love his family. But if that's missing, If, on the other hand, you hear someone say, I cannot tolerate my mother-in-law. I can't do it. You can can get married and stay married pretty well. Yeah. Okay? As long as there's some empathy Mm -hmm. and some kindness Mm -hmm. all around. So much of it depends on that. Right. The rest, honestly, is, is a kind of mellowing process and a hardening process. I know I'm those are antithetical ideas, mm-hmm. but you both mellow and and harden 
in a way. Uh, you learn each other's non-negotiables. And so those would be my three. Physicality is important. And things, getting married doesn't change the things that bother you or right. the things you love. It's not a cure. And uh, you can overcome the other person's family not being ideal. Yeah. That's good to know. Because I know a lot of people write in about the issues with their in-laws. Mm -hmm. You obviously, I mean, but correct me if I'm wrong, didn't have any doubts with Betsy before getting married. Zero. But how much doubt is normal or okay when moving towards marriage? Because by the way, I didn't have any doubts either. Yeah. And I say that and people are like, that's bullshit. Or I have doubts and you're making me feel bad, you know. But I do think that there's two kinds of people. There's just some people who don't have doubts in general, like low anxiety, you know? And then there are some people who just like overthink things. Yes. There are people who trust their intuition more than others. Right. For sure. It's kind of hard to answer when I don't really know what doubt right. we're talking about. Mm -hmm. I would say if, look, I have only my own experience. The only thing we really know is our own lives. And even yeah. that we barely grasp. Mm -hmm. I had that sense of surety the first time in my life with Betsy. I've had it two other times. It's been spot on every time. What were the other times becoming a rabbi? No, the, the first time was, well, becoming a rabbi was a, wasn't like that. Right, right, right. That was a journey. Mm -hmm. First time was when I met Betsy. The second time was when I was interviewing for my first job. Uh -huh. And I walked out onto the pulpit, onto the Bema at Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles. I, I felt right. I stood there and I said, yeah, mm -hmm. this works. Mm -hmm. I'll speak from right here because it's, mm -hmm. it's an incredible place. Yeah. And interestingly enough, the last time was more recent where I knew it was time for me to step down as senior rabbi because I was burnt out. Mm -hmm. I've, I've been there 37 years. Yeah, I'm going to be there one more year full time and then two years half time. But it, there was this moment when I realized I need to engineer my exit because I'm burnt out. Yeah, And I'm going to end up doing this for the wrong reasons. Right. I'm going to end up doing this only for the money. And that's not right. Mm -hmm. And I just knew I was fried. Yeah. So, so I'm changing my life and it's scary. I don't know what I'm going to do next. I have no idea. I'm letting go one trapeze and the other one hasn't arrived yet. Well, hopefully these books, these well, books get going. Books get going. are like, you know, beer money, but, mm -hmm. and I, I do still have to, you know, make money, but I just know I, I cannot do this with a full heart any longer. Yeah. Yeah. You have some good intuition. All right. I think we only have time. Oh, we, we are, we don't have time, but if you have time. I have and time. If, and if we're okay on time. Yeah. Okay. Amazing. Okay. Perfect. I'm going to squeeze a couple more Go for the goal. Here. Come on. <laughs> Oof. So many good questions. Okay. What do All you right. want to know? Well, I mean, oh my God. I could I could ask you questions all day. Some of these some of these are coming from me as well. You know what? This is actually a great one. So at this present moment, I am pregnant, but we struggled a lot to conceive. Mm. And I'm sure that you've heard this from some of the couples in your orbit. Yeah. How would you have told them to stay positive that it will all work out? This is exactly what I would have said to you and Stephen. Mm -hmm. I would have said, let me tell you something about parenting. 
and parenthood, it's full of suffering. We all suffer for our children. Some of us suffer for them even before they are conceived. Some of us suffer when they're babies. Some of us suffer when they're teenagers. Some of us suffer when they're full-grown adults. To be a parent is to suffer and sacrifice Mm -hmm. because that's the deepest kind of love. So you're learning already. So you are already parents. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And that way, first of all, it's absolutely true. And then you know that infertility, it's not a curse. It's a part of the deal. Right. Of parenting. Like maybe you're not going to have a horrible, you know, pot smoking, unambitious 50 year old son because you're (laughs) suffering with infertility. I don't know. But no one can be a parent without profound suffering. It's part of of why we love our children so much. Right. So do you think the decision to become a parent is selfish or selfless? I think it's human. Mm-hmm. It's a, we have within us an urge for life. You know, uh, Kafka said the meaning of life is that it ends. And it's true. Yeah. If we were lifeless, cre- deathless creatures, no one would have children. Yeah. Children are born out of this urge to continue life itself and perpetuate life. And by the way, as we were talking about earlier, that pain is the great teacher. Children are conceived in pleasure. They're born in pain. Mm -hmm. It's painful. Yeah. And it's exquisite. It's transcendent. And it's the most fun you will ever have in your whole life. Lindsay, you are headed (laughs) <laughs> For the most fun, they're a riot. It's a 24-hour circus in your house. I'm so excited. It's the best. And it hurts sometimes. Yeah. What would you do if, let's use Hannah as an example, just because she's here, if Hannah told you that she didn't want to have children? Uh, I I would, obviously, I would affirm that. I mm-hmm. would ask a few questions yeah. about why. And I would I would push back on the thinking, not push back, I would, I would, examine the thinking with her a little bit mm-hmm. but ultimately it's her body and her decision yeah but hannah's an early childhood educator so I know, she's, she's, a teacher. she's got like 20 kids at a time yeah um <laughs> and if someone ends up doing ivf you mm-hmm. know i've heard i've you know we, we ended up doing ivf and i've heard some people say it feels not natural right because it's not like god related mm-hmm how can not we... God related? It's most miraculous thing ever. Thank you. Yes. It's far more God related than think about the joining together of purpose and intellect mm-hmm. required to create life, to be God's partner in creating life. Think about that. That's very godly. We're right. God's partners. Your doctors were God's partners, God's hands. Yeah. The only way God's will can be done on earth is through us. So those were the hands of God. Right. And it will be a transcendent, powerful experience. I have never, ever in my almost 40 years as a rabbi encountered a single parent who didn't feel their child at birth was a gift from God. Yeah. 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 If you're not a believer before you give birth, you will be. Oh, for sure. So I, I 
uh, I can't tell you how mm-hmm. you should feel. Mm-hmm. I can just tell you how I see it. Is a child, my brother and his husband, Tom, adopted an 18-month-old baby from Ukraine 23 years ago. They went in and asked for the sickest little baby in the orphanage, and they brought him home. Those, those were the hands of God. Yeah. And he's, he's now, by the way, not that this is such a big accomplishment. He's the tallest kid in the leader family for <laughs> That's sure. Amazing. You know, he's like this big five foot nine, 10 Ukrainian kid. He's a great kid, Elliot. And they saved his life. Yeah. Those are the hands of God. Totally. You're totally. You're in for one of life's most transcendent and meaningful moments. I'm so excited. Okay, my last question yeah, for shoot. you. And then we're going to end with a kind of quote or piece of advice from you, even though we've gotten so many already. What is one thing that you can share? We'll make it, you know, for me, but I know it's for so many people listening to keep that specialness of your marriage after kids, you know, after these mm-hmm. kids are running around mm-hmm. and it seems like all you can talk about is when they've eaten and when they've, you know, pooped and whatever. How are we keeping the marriage special because that comes first right well the 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 baby is a part of the marriage mm-hmm. you're also married to the baby it's beautiful i would say back to the sort of dominant theme we've developed here give give and give do more for each other yeah do more for each other do more for each other and then that wedding really becomes a marriage I love it. I could go, I could keep you for here huh? forever if we it can, were up to me. We'll do another one. But um, can you leave us with a quote or piece of advice, something that we can take away that, you know, that you can share with us? I wish when I was younger, I had worried less, much less about what other people thought of me. And I wish I had worried much less about trying to play the part, the role of who other people thought I should be. Mm -hmm. Kabuki is no way to live. It's painful. Love it. Thank you so much. Where can everybody find you? Read all your books. Yeah, yeah. Support Um, you. You can find all the books on Amazon. You can find me on Instagram, mostly I engage on, on Instagram, which is at Steve underscore leader, L-E-D-E-R. Those, and, and, you know, I have a website and then Wilshire Boulevard Temple and all that, but Instagram's a good place and all the books on Amazon. And thank you for what you're doing, Lindsay. It's really been an honor to be with you today. Thank you so much. note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.